Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be celebrating the centenary of the press by speaking with just one guest, Nicholas Bass-Baines, the author of A World of Letters, Yale University Press, 1908 to 2008. Nicholas Bass-Baines' first book, A Gentle Madness, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in nonfiction, and was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. His subsequent books include Patience and Fortitude, Among the Gently Mad, A Splendor of Letters, and Every Book Its Reader. Nicholas Bassbanes, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. Uh, my pleasure. Well, let's start with a general question. What is it that makes a university press different from a traditional general trade publisher? Yeah, that's a very good question. A scholarly press, uh, also known as an academic press or a university press, uh, and there really aren't that many of them in the United States, perhaps uh, 80 or 85 of them. They exist uh, as part of a university, and uh, the idea is to publish books uh, that have some scholarly merit and not necessarily for the purposes of turning a profit. And the Yale University Press, one of the, one of the most uh, impressive aspects about Yale University Press is that it manages year after year to operate in the black. and. Uh, one of the uh, really great features uh, that I was able to, to, to uh, explore in my uh, investigation of uh, this, this centennial history of the Yale University Press was to, to learn that Yale actually operates in the black, as I just said, how it manages to really balance uh, its, uh, its mission to, to uh, publish works of scholarly merit and that, that are published because they, it is felt that they should be that they should be published, but also to publish other books that have a market that, uh, that, that actually enjoy uh, healthy sales and, and with profits that are able to, to uh, uh, balance the costs of publishing these other books. So what is the relationship between Yale University and Yale University Press? That's a very interesting question and, and, uh, and it was something I really didn't know about before I uh, accepted the invitation to, to, to work on this project. But, but Yale actually started uh, the Yale University Press uh, established in 1908. It was named Yale University Press, but it was not a formal division of the university. It was actually a, a private, uh, not-for-profit corporation, uh, George Parmley Day and his brother Clarence Day, and a third uh, uh, Yale alum, uh, Edwin Oviatt, uh, established the Yale University Press. And while they enjoyed this association with the university, and while they uh, certainly had the approbation of the university, it was a, a private entity. Uh, in 1961, however, the press became a formal division of the university, so that for about uh, the last, uh, what is it, 1961 to 2008, however many years that is, what is that, 47 years, for about, uh, about half of its existence, uh, the press has been a formal division of the university, but it is, uh, as, as one individual, Frank Turner, uh, very uh, uh, senior person in the, in the uh, Yale administration, and now the head of the Beinecke 
library uh, said to me, it, it is a, almost a unique division in the life of the university because it it, uh, it functions almost uh, by courtesy. And I, when he when he used that expression, I really didn't know uh, precisely what he what he meant. So I asked him to uh, to expand on that. And he said, "Well, by courtesy means rather gently that it, that it is expected to to make its own way." Uh, while, while the press certainly does uh, benefit from the, the university's general endowment, as does every other division in the, in the university, uh, the press, because it is in the, in the business of, of publishing books and selling them, uh, is expected to generate income. And as it happens quite happily, uh, Yale University Press does manage to do this year after year. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's say that I wanted to purchase a book from Yale University Press. I mean, nowadays it's easy enough. As people listen to the show know I constantly mention the website they can go to. But in the beginning, how would I go about getting a book from Yale University Press? It was established as a, as a publisher. Uh, the very first university press in the United States, by the way, was uh, Johns Hopkins in 1878. So the whole, the whole uh, institution of academic Publishing is really rather recent in the United States. It, it really only uh, begins uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, unlike Europe, and particularly in the United Kingdom and, and England, where the, where the uh, first university presses were established back in the 15th century, Oxford and Cambridge, where they have traditions that go back for 500 years. But it really didn't start in the United States until the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, at, at, at precisely the time that there was this professionalization of scholarship going on, where there really was perceived to be a need for outlets to to publish the fruits of, of, of really very detailed and intensive and uh, exciting scholarship. And that's really how university presses uh, 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 be, uh, started to evolve. Now, once these books were published, they were offered to the to, uh, largely to, uh, to libraries, catalogs were issued. They had business offices, uh, and you would you would uh, either buy buy the books. Mainly, I would say, uh, in the early years, through catalogs that were issued, uh, uh, as as is the case today. Every every major publisher and every major university press issues catalogs uh, to some as many as three a year, usually in, in the fall and, and in the spring, but. Uh, uh, many other presses also issue uh, winter catalogs, and, and you order from the catalog. And many, many universities, uh, university libraries in particular, bought on standing order. Uh, this is something we could talk about a little, uh, a little further on in the interview, if you'd like. But, but uh, one of the reasons why so many university presses today in the 21st century, why the trend is really gloomy for so many university presses, is because what, what was once a, a, an established market, the standing order among universities to buy just about every book that was published by a university press, is no longer there anymore. A lot of this, of course, has to do with the what we call the electronic alternative. Well, so much uh, scholarship and knowledge is now uh, uh, available electronically and uh, through digital means, but uh, there was a time there when university presses were almost guaranteed at least uh, breaking even because libraries in particular were buying their books. You don't necessarily find that to be the case today. But uh, And there were so many uh, uh, bookstores in college towns in New Haven and, uh, and uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Berkeley, wherever you go, or wherever there are universities and students, uh, university press books would, would uh, uh, invariably be 
be available for sale. So there, there's really nothing too different from buying a book published by a university press than the, the, the one published by a trade press, in my view. Let me also add that you talk about uh, a sign of the times. Uh, uh, what, what, uh, something I learned when I was uh, researching this book that in the last two or three years, the number one customer for Yale University Press in the world is now Amazon. Amazon.com orders and sells more books than any other single customer uh, that the press has. Yale University Press, I'm proud to say the Yale Press podcast is the very first podcast put out by University Press. And until I read your book, I didn't realize that way back in the day, Yale was in the movie business. How did that happen? Excuse me for smiling, but I have to say also that uh, so many of the people at the press didn't uh, didn't know about it either, and, and uh, there were a number of individuals who uh, who have uh, read the uh, manuscript of this book. Said, "Are you serious? Were we really in the film business?" And yes, for a couple of years back in the early 1920s, 1922, 1923. Uh, as a result of a very successful uh, uh, publishing series called The Chronicles of America. These were little, small little books, you know, not big, detailed books, uh, on such subjects as the Revolutionary War, the Industrial Revolution, or let's say Battles of the Revolution, not the entire revolution, or World War One, or uh, books on general history that were commissioned and uh, and uh, each one was written by an acknowledged scholar, or historian, or biographer in the field, and published in compact little editions of a couple hundred uh, pages. Um, uh, they weren't overloaded with scholarly apparatus. They were very successful. They sold remarkably well. They were the brainchild of a Canadian uh, gentleman by the name of Robert Glasgow, who did a similar project up in Canada called the, I think it was the Chronicles of Canada. Uh, there was a, a similar kind of a concept which he, pro- he proposed uh, to Yale, and Yale then at that time, as I said earlier, being an, an, a, a privately operated entity that, that, uh, that uh, had the name of the Parent Institution but really was not a part of the institution, they were able to make these kinds of business decisions. And they started the Chronicles of America. They were tremendously successful. And these books, in fact, are credited with really keeping the press afloat during the years of the of the Great Depression. Well, uh, it was it was suggested again by this man Glasgow because he was a, because he was an entrepreneur uh, that perhaps they could they could uh, parlay the success of this series into the making of films. And so uh, George Parmley Day, who uh, was, by the way, uh, the founder of the press, but it was an exceedingly wealthy man. His father was a governor of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, and really the press began with capital that he brought into it. Uh, he and his brother Cl- Clarence certainly made, made appeals uh, for backers, for people to support to support this operation, but in the beginning it was really the, their money would, that got this, uh, got this thing going. Uh, he was a businessman. He used to work on Wall Street with his father, and he thought this was an opportunity uh, to really introduce something that would. Uh, uh, and when you, by the way, when you see a lot of the arguments that that were made, that they, they parallel so much uh, uh, concerns you you see uh, raised now with whether or not the the internet is uh, is. Uh, uh, much of an alternative to reading, uh, where people really scared that the movies were going to take over and pollute the minds of young readers, and they thought this was a very, a very worthwhile attempt to to uh, produce films that could be used in the classroom uh, and that could uh, really supplement uh, supplement reading. Well, 
so they, they produced about 15 of these movies. Uh, unfortunately, this was very early in the whole in the exercise of this collaboration between uh, scholar and historian and filmmakers, and it wasn't a very it was not a very happy collaboration. Uh, uh, the, the historians and the scholars were concerned about the integrity of, of the. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying this by disparaging it in any way, but they were concerned about whether or not the factual record would be would be distorted uh, for the sake of good entertainment, and the entertainers, of course, of course, were interested in the narrative, and uh, it never really it never really was very successful. And then, of course, what happened in 1929 was uh, uh, the advent of sound. Uh, these are these are again were silent films and. And so it, it died a very uh, quiet uh, death. It, it, it more or less demonstrated that uh, uh, maybe a university press uh, is uh, best advised to, to publish books and not to go and play Hollywood, which is what they did here. But it was it was fun, and uh, uh, well, it wasn't fun for the for the people who bought stock in the operation. They, they actually sold stock for sixty dollars a share. We're talking the nineteen twenties. And I think it was when they finally dissolved oh, 30 or so years later, it had really no value at all. So now in the course of your research, did you actually see one of these films? You know, that's a good question. I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wonder where, they, where, where in fact they are. I, I do know that uh, yeah, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, I'll bet, does, does have some, because I did see a letter, a, test, a letter of testimonial. Uh, expressing their delight in these films, and they and they got a whole, uh, they received a whole set of the films. Uh, I, I did read a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, film criticism of the films, and uh, you know I'm sure they're they're very, they're very quaint and dated. They're silent films, are of course black and white, and uh, and I'm sure they would be kind of abusing because because they're so dated. But uh, no, I, I didn't actually. I'll be back with the second half of my interview with Nicholas Bassbanes in just a moment. You know, every episode I take time to mention the Yale Press book sale, which is an ongoing way to get some great deals on some great books. But there is more to the Yale Press website than that. For example, full information about the centennial celebration can be found at yalebooks.com centennial. Up-to-the-minute news about the press and its books can be found at yalebooks.com newsletter. You can access the blog from the site, as well as find all of the earlier shows, starting in November 2006, at yalebooks.com podcast. And now, back to the interview with Nicholas Bassbanes. Let's take a look at one of the giants of the press, a man named Chester Kerr. Who was he and what did he do? Well, Chester comes along right in the, right in the middle of the history. And uh, Chester Brooks uh, Kerr was a, a Yale alum, his... his uh, his roommate at Yale was uh, John Hersey, who became the great, uh, the great writer. And Chester was uh, a professional publisher. And this is very important. Uh, he, he graduated from Yale, and he went to work in the, uh, the trade, what we call the trade, trade publishing in New York, a variety of, of companies. Uh, during World War II, he was a, uh, an officer who served uh, uh, overseas, and he he was the person responsible for for publishing the armed uh, services editions. These were little paperback books of uh, of uh, newly published uh, novels and uh, 
biographies and histories that were that were published for our, our service people abroad, many millions of them, and this was a, a great success. And Chester was in charge of that. And then when the war was over, he uh, he uh, went back into publishing again in trade publishing, and he was he was approached to write a an evaluation of, of, of academic publishing in the United States. And this he did. He, he uh, at that time there were 35 members of the Association of American University Presses, and he did a survey of all of them, uh, uh, what what they thought was right about academic publishing, where where it needed to improve, uh, ways to stay afloat, and it became a uh, quite a successful uh, little monograph, and it became known as the Kerr Report. Uh, in that in that book, he had many wonderful things to say about uh, his alma mater and George Parmley Day and the press in New Haven, and uh, I'm sure this had a lot to do with his hiring as the uh, he came on as uh, as uh, secretary uh, of the press, and very shortly thereafter was named uh, the director. And for 20 years or so, it was uh, 1958, uh, 1959, he was the director of the press, and he really presided over a lot of uh, monumental changes at the press. He was there, in fact, when the press went from being a, a uh, privately held uh, uh, corporation into, into a full-fledged division of the university. He, he, uh, but he, he, he brought a, a, a commercial bent to the press. I, I don't mean this in any... Uh, any critical way, but he brought a mindset, the mindset of a commercial uh, New York publisher to academic publishing, and so he kept his eye on how to run this operation as a business, and uh, not to say that the books were meant to be commercial successes, but how to how to publish books that would, uh, as I said earlier in the interview, would allow the press to uh, be successful enough that they could underwrite the publication of books that would not that would not be commercially successful, and, and he did this in, in many many uh, uh, innovative ways. He was a larger than life man. He was very flamboyant. He he dressed in beautifully tailored English suits. He, he had a, a big uh, uh, thick guardsman's mustache. He smoked a pipe. Uh, he uh, he had. Uh, Strong opinions on everything. Uh, people who loved him loved him. People who didn't love him uh, uh, didn't love him. Shall we say? Uh, nobody that I spoke to who couldn't remember him was a, a neutral in any way about him. But they all agree that he did take the press and, uh, and directed it in a, a, a pointed in the direction that really transformed it from a, a, a university press that was very good into one that I think everyone would would agree is outstanding. I was say, he also seemed to raise the ire of the Italian-American community in New Haven back in 1965. Yeah, that's a cute story, and, and I, I, I'm sure that was not his intention to do that, but uh, uh, the press uh, published a book called The Vinland Map, and uh, The Vinland Map uh, was a book uh, about a, a, a chart, uh, a map that uh, Yale had acquired, the university had acquired uh, the gift of... Uh, uh, an anonymous donor, what was uh, believed, what was uh, uh, for 30 years, it was only known as an anonymous donor, but what, what we know uh, today was the gift of, of the great Paul Mellon, the, 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 uh, the greatest uh, benefactor in the history of the university. It's certainly not just uh, uh, the arts uh, at, at Yale, but uh, uh, Yale University, Paul Mellon, is a, is an ex- was an extraordinary man, and, and he, he purchased this 
map that purported to um, to document that that the Vikings uh, uh, arrived in uh, North America 50 years or so before Columbus set sail, and very persuasive, uh, impressive map. And, and and when it was announced, uh, it was purchased. And part of and part of the agreement, by the way, for when Mellon uh, uh, bought the map and gave it to the university, he made very clear that you know. Uh, I, I don't want you to take this unless it can be absolutely authenticated to be to be true and correct. And there were uh, some uh, pretty intensive uh, uh, scholarly examinations done of the of the map, but they were done quietly. Uh, people from the British uh, Museum, cartographers from uh, the United States, uh, the Library of Congress looked at it. Uh, many of them, uh, they all they determined at the time that it was genuine, and then Yale published announced that it was publishing this book. Well, they announced it the day before Columbus Columbus Day. Uh, and, uh, and what this meant, if it were true, it meant that Columbus didn't get here first. And, uh, Christopher Columbus, of course, is a great hero of the Italian-Americans. And uh, New Haven is, uh, has a very prominent uh, uh, Italian-American community. It's the home of the Knights of Columbus. Uh, people who are familiar with New Haven know that pizza starts in the United States and uh, Worcester Street. And, New Haven, and so just the timing of the announcement, uh, Columbus Day, uh, uh, did not please a lot of people, and uh, especially uh, Italian Americans in New Haven, and, and really around the country. So there was a, there was uh, some uh, some reaction to that, and then especially uh, within a year or so, when there were uh, 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 suggestions of, that the map was a hoax, a very clever hoax. And that perhaps uh, uh, everyone, including the people of the Yale Press, had been fooled. Uh, and while while this uh, this Finland map was never recanted, uh, there were some uh, scientific tests done in the ink and on the paper. Uh, and it was actually on parchment, I believe, not paper. Uh, but but there were there were t- uh, scientific tests done in the ink, and, and so it was suggested that this couldn't have been produced when. Uh, when the dating set it was, and so, and then, but then, uh, oh, ten or fifteen years later, a number of new tests uh, reconfirmed that maybe it, wa- it wasn't a hoax after all. Maybe it was authentic. And twenty years afterwards, and uh, it was uh, even more than twenty years after that, uh, was it nineteen ninety-five or so? Uh, they, they they published the Vinland map again, but uh, the jury is still out as to whether or not. Uh, uh, it's authentic uh, or a hoax, and, uh, and I don't take a stand on that. I, I give you all the sources and all the research, research that's been done in the world of letters, uh, and you can go check that out yourself. But uh, if, you, if you're so inclined, uh, but it was a very interesting, a very interesting uh, uh, moment in the history of the press. What is it right now that you think is keeping the current director John Donatich up at night? I think how he is how he is going to play a significant role in 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 the uh, the future of of the printed book in the 21st century, and how he how he is, can do this in a way that really takes advantage of all the new tech all of the new technologies that are just coming on in a cyclonic fashion and changing the whole face of of, of the of the publishing industry. And I think that uh, he and by and when I say he, I, I mean the entire press under his direction is really uh, advancing. Uh, and, and uh, introducing uh, projects that are really quite exciting. Uh, and I discuss a number of them in the book. 
Well, Nicholas Baspains, the author of A World of Letters, Yale University Press, 1908 to 2008. Thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press podcast. You can contact the show at yup.email.news at yale.edu. Heather Dioria is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host of the show, and since, barring any dramatic improvements in medicine, the chances of my being at the bicentennial celebration are quite slim, I'd like to congratulate the press on 100 years of a job well done. See you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.